Hello, and welcome to the Accelerated Culture Podcast, a sonic journey through the vibrant and revolutionary sounds of the 1980s and 1990s. In this podcast, my co-host Rob and I will dive deep into the era of new wave and alternative music, exploring the infectious beats, introspective lyrics, and groundbreaking experimentation that defined a generation and left an indelible mark on the music landscape. Join us as we unravel the stories behind the music that shaped an era. Well, hello and welcome to the Accelerated Culture Podcast, the podcast that's too cool for school. I'm Lori. And I am getting over a bad case of bronchitis, so I apologize. I'm a little bit hoarse. My co-host Rob is on a sabbatical, so he will not be joining us today. However, I do have a very special guest that I am so excited to introduce. He is a musician. He is a graphic designer, a filmmaker, a video director. I guarantee you, you have seen his work and you probably have it in your collection. I'd like to introduce my friend, Nick Egan. Hello, Nick. Hi, Delore. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How about you? Yeah, not bad. You know, California, cold, not, not like Chicago, but, but certainly the cold point of the year. It's kind of a bit grisly out there. How about you? Snow? Uh, snow and sub-zero temperatures. Yeah. Probably about 52, so it's freezing. <laughs> oh, see, now we call that bikini weather. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the great thing about living here is the weather. Anyway, so I'm pleased to be on your show. I'm pleased that you're doing this podcast. I, went, I looked at some of the subjects you did, and it, you see it's a really nice, there's a nice angle on what you do, and I'm, I'm happy to be part of it. Well, thank you. I'm so happy that you're here. I'm not really sure where to, where to start with this, but, you know, Nick, I have been going through my, my music collection from my teens and my 20s, and I never realized how many of your album covers were in my collection. I know that you've done work for In Excess, Duran Duran, Psychedelic Furs, The Clash, The Pretenders, Iggy Pop, Dexy's Midnight Runners. I mean, this is like my, my teenage music library. That's so cool. But you started off as a, a musician, didn't you? Uh, well, actually, no. What I started off as, as I started off as an art, I went to art school in England. Art schools have always been the uh, the nucleus for most of the creativity in bands in the in England. That you know, John Lennon, uh, the Rolling Stones, the Clash, Pink Floyd, Roxy Music. I mean, all of those people came out of Blur. They all came out of art colleges. And what art colleges are in England, they're very different from here. Art colleges here are usually attached to a bigger university. And there's Parsons and CalArts. It's kind of separate, but but the, academia doesn't really consider an art college academia, and so what they're, they're kind of pushed off. And there's 15 major art schools in London alone, so they've they've kind of got autonomy, and 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 so they kind of because academia doesn't really kind of know how to fit them, and a lot of art students are the kind of kids that didn't couldn't get into university, but they weren't ready to go and work in a factory. So it kind of it kind of goes around the middle. I had to go to art school in 1976 right when the punk movement started. So there was this incredible energy towards, well, it, it was, well, I always call it the, the, it was the beginning of the am, amateur as a, as a, as a um, 
success. So you, you didn't have to have any qualifications. You didn't necessarily have to be that good. You didn't even have to necessarily be a musician, but what it did was it encouraged, it encouraged everybody to try it. And then ultimately, you know, cream rises to the top. So, only, so the people that are good will get up there. And some people will fail, but said, you know what? I, at least I had a chance to do it. So I was at art school and um, when punk happened, and and I never thought about it as a career, and particularly working in, in a music. Um, I like music. I was a big fan of David Bowie and Roxy Music. and and um, But one day I went to the 100 Club on the suggestion of a friend to see a band called the Sex Pistols, and it was like a tiny jazz club in Oxford Street. And there was about 50 people in there. And I remember because the previous week or two I'd been to Wembley to see David Bowie, with 18,000 people, and I had a restricted view seat, which meant I was right in the back, right at the side of the stage, and the only time I saw David Bowie was when he came to the front of the stage. Then the next week, and then a week or two later, I'm at this tiny club called The 100 Club. There's not that many people in there. And and, and then the band were came out of the audience. In fact, one of the band members was standing next to me. He got in the audience, and that, was, that blew my mind because, you know, it, it it meant that there was that incredible accessibility, not only to become a, um, a musician or an artist, but to be able to be in touch with them. I mean, we think about what, what access we have now because of social media to stars. Really, back then, there was no access to it. You became a fan club member and you got a signed photograph, but you couldn't really communicate. So punk kind of like made everybody a, a, a level playing ground. So I was at, at art school and um, the, the, the there was... A couple of guys started a band. Wireless group Wire went to my art school, but a couple of guys started a punk band called the Bears. And tragically, the singer was killed in a motorcycle accident. Mick North, who was a good friend of mine, and they kind of had put a record out, and then they decided they were going to reform, but they wanted to stop. Yeah, they couldn't find the right singer, and they came to me. And that, and the reason they came to me is because I was I was kind of had a look. You know, I dyed hair. I wanted to paint my clothes my shirts, and they said to me, do you, want to be in, do you want to be a singer? And I was like, oh, God, I never thought about that. I wasn't sure if I could perform or anything. So I, I, I agreed. I was nervous about the whole thing, especially the first show. But as soon as I got on stage, we were called the tea set and as soon as I was on stage, I just, it, I was a natural. I couldn't believe how natural I was. I wasn't a great singer. I didn't, I didn't want a singer like most punks were, but I was a performer. And, um, and then we went on to do several records and um, we uh, went on tour with the Stranglers and the Skids and we played in Paris and we played with the pop and we played with U2. We were the first, we, we, we were the support man for the first ever show in London and there were more people in the audience for us than there was for them. And when we played with Iggy, Iggy Pop, we had these three backing singers, these three girl backing singers who became, who, who went on to become Bananarama. And, and, and so we, we touched a little bit of musical history and then recently probably in 2019 i was approached by uh, probably the biggest surviving independent label in the world cleopatra records who put out a lot of stuff and they said to me would you would you want to put a record out of all your singles so i said yeah i said so i got together with my old bandmates i mean i did love performing I got together with my old bandmates and we said, right, great, we did it. But we wanted to record a new song. So we went back in the studio in 2019, like 30 years after we broke up and we recorded that and we put an album out and it got really great critical acclaim and I made a video for it.
But my the reason I didn't pursue the band was because right at the same time as I was in the band, I was also starting to work with people like The Clash. Obviously, I did their first, oh, not their first, but I did a single for them, White Man in Hammersmith Palais. And then, I, and then I, through that association, I became... Uh, uh, um, um, became associated with a guy called Malcolm McLaren who was the manager of the Sex Pistols who now had a group called Bow Wow Wow and he um, I started to get involved with him so so I was working I was flying to New York I was doing these things with Bow Wow Wow and, and it kind of took preference over what I did as a yeah I mean one thing about being a musician I mean the other great thing about England at that time was it we had the thing, well, it was unemployment, it's called the dole. So basically, you left college and you went straight on the dole. So you got paid by the government for being unemployed. And that's how most bands started. You know, they, they, and that's why they called themselves these aliases like Johnny Rotten, because they didn't want the social security people to get find out they were playing shows. So they came up aliases primarily for that. But really, that wasn't, you know, that wasn't glamorous enough for me. And I, you know, when I was working with Bow Wow Wow, yeah, I was going. I went to Berlin and Amsterdam and 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 um, and uh, Hamburg, and I was going to New York, and 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 so I figured that's what I was going to do in the end because I was getting some success with it, and um, and the band were 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 at a crossroads where we didn't know what we wanted to do, wanted to do. We had some success, but it wasn't enough to start giving us any money. But what I do realize now is that if you're a musician, you have to keep at it. And I had a friend who died not too long ago, and, and if you ever get a chance, you should check him out on on, um, on the internet. His name is Sir Ken Robinson, great person. And he, um, in oh, what year was I? I can't remember what year. But he wrote a, a paper for the Tony Blair government in London about education and how we're treating education wrong and how we need to focus a lot on creativity. And you know, we're forcing kids to do subjects they don't want to do and they're not interested in. Why can't we sort of... So he wrote this great thing, and and um, and then he was knighted by the Queen for it. And um, he moved to America, and he got the um, I think he got the Congressional Medal of Honor or something. But he he he, he turned the idea he turned the idea of education on its head. You know, like like encouraging these schools, like like the Blue Man Group started a school, and and there are a bunch of artists, and their whole they're, they're approaching education in a completely different way. And if you ever get a chance, he did a TED talk, and it was great. It was one of the most downloaded TED talks, because he's very funny. He's very funny as well. He's from Liverpool, big family. And um, on that, he he, 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 he talks about, you know, how kids kids flourish when they're, they're, you know, he, he likened it to fast food. It's like, you know, you can do the fast food or you can do this stuff where you grow it personally, you make it grow and blossom. And that's, he said, that's how children should be. And he believed, and he used the Picasso quote, all children are born artists. It's just saying that way. And what he found in America was that art really, by the time he finished high, um, middle school, art isn't really considered that serious a subject anymore. But children are natural artists. So um, he, his, his take on was, <laughs> and his humor is such as he said, well, you know what? He said, I've got 20 million downloads on, on the YouTube. He goes, which sounds great. And so you hear the one of the 700 million downloads of the cat walking on the piano. And, and I thought that was really funny because that is, that unfortunately, we're in, a, we're in this kind of grip of mediocrity, where mediocrity is a, is a new level of, of, of like um, yes. success. Right. Yes. And 
your 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 kind introduction somebody said to me to, he said influences you go what the fuck he, you he said you've influenced more people than than any influencer today has and and maybe not directly because maybe but like you said because my name's been on these record covers and people see it and it's gone across and it's and records that have inspired people he said that's an influencer and I, and i was very complimented by that it's not some guy posing for like you know you know posing and taking pictures of him or herself and trying to be fabulous without actually doing any work so it, yeah it's a different it's a different generation from mine and and um, we weren't we weren't obsessed with celebrity and we certainly weren't obsessed with fame and we didn't expect fame and or or any recognition for that matter so um I was lucky in the beginning that I was in the right place at the right time. I had some talent, and I met the right people, and and um and I've had a successful career. And and you know, like a, you're aware of, I just I decided that it was time for me to look back at all the things I've done and put it out there, and talk about each project. And I was quite amazed by the things I've done, and and quite touched by the response I got from people. And I've been asked to do various interviews, and I've been asked to do various things based off of that, and. And it was really the, the the best of my covers, and and I, and it's amazing to me, and it's quite quite a, a humbling experience when you hear people like yourself, or, or, or lots of people who said this meant everything to me. This was my, you know, I grew up with this, and and um, you know, it was it was the um, it, it, it changed my life in a way, not necessarily just the art, but the but the artists I worked with, in some cases, the art, uh, the Malcolm McLaren that rock cover in particular, um. So I'm really, I was really pleased I did it because, um, I, you know, you got to see that you didn't waste your time after all this time. And, you know, despite my mother's, my grandmother saying to me, you should get a decent job. Um, you know, it, it really was. And I'm, I, and I'm literally the only artist in my family, none before, none after, none since. So, so, uh, so, and it was a talent I was given without thinking about it when I was very young and, and, and was good at art. And, and so um, I, I'm one of the lucky few that really was born with something that apps that continued to use it throughout my life. Even though back then art really wasn't a subject that you could get a job in. It wasn't a job, you know, Hey, I'm going to go and be an artist. I mean, I would love to have been Picasso, but that's <laughs> next to impossible. So I chose a different route, and I, and I did graphic design, not fine art, but I'm thinking of myself more as a fine artist, and I didn't particularly like graphic design. But but the good thing about it, Laurie, was that it was DIY, did it itself, and it was amateur, and it was it was like, have a go, fuck it, who cares? I mean, it doesn't matter. It's like, just give it a go and try it. And, and you know, and even if you don't have all the luxuries that some people have to put stuff together, the equipment or whatever, make out of it what you want what you have that, that you create create from what's immediately around you and you'll find yourself much more um inspired doing things that way so and i still like that idea that oh i could easily run out and buy the best equipment the best is and sometimes i just go what have i got handy and i'll and i'll use what's handy and that's pretty much what the what the culture is around the world it's like what i learned from working with malcolm mclaren and the duck rock cover was that people were like most people, they call it, my, my principal used to call it indigenous vernacular, which basically is, is kind of like a, it comes from nothing. It, come, it doesn't come from a particular thing. Come, a person will go, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to use that, and they make it. Like the tribe, the Zulu tribes who made themselves, 
decorated jewelry using forks and knives and cutlery that they found and and uh, people in Central America did it with their cars by putting antennas on and colors and, and I think that's what I've always thought was a great part of the human spirit and character is that they are able to be creative without having to have all the latest technology and and I certainly had to learn that before the revolution of Photoshop and probably most of the people listening to this now who have computers, couldn't imagine what it was like before Photoshop came along, but Photoshop really does all the things I had to do manually. For example, if I did, if I needed type, I'd have to go to a typesetting house and, and, and wait for two days for that to come back. And if it was a mistake, I had to redo it all again, or I had to go to a different place to get stats done, or I'd have to get to it put further. And it would take like, uh, months or, or more to do a record cover. Now I can literally do a record cover in a day. And so, but the downfall of that is that there's not money anymore because everybody thinks they can do it and everybody does do it. And I don't have a problem with that, but but um, what it does is it, it's, it's narrowed the market down. And, and so you don't have those wonderful um, uh, um opportunities to create something individual because every, everyone's got access to everything straight away. And that, that's a good thing, but I don't know um, whether it means these people are talented with it, you know? Right. Right. But yeah, ultimately, you know, I did work hard for what I got, even though I was lucky in the very beginning to get what I got, I used it and I worked hard at it, you know? So you've already mentioned three bands that you've worked for. So I want to just kind of talk a little bit about the work that you've done. So you mentioned The Clash. What did you create for The Clash? Well, The Clash, well, I met The Clash because a friend of mine that went to the same guy that was actually tragically killed, that I mentioned before, Mick, went to Byam Shaw's art school with Paul Simonon. They did a foundation course together. And, and he said to me, oh, yeah, and Paul's a friend of mine. When you, if you see him, go up and say hello. So I did. And... Um, and he just said, it's one of those things, he said, oh, you should do one of our record covers. It wasn't like, oh, there's a meeting at so-and-so, or we need to look at your portfolio, or we need to see how many Instagram followers you've got. It was literally as simple as that. And then through their manager, Pete, a friend of mine, Pete, who I worked closely with in the beginning, we used to work together. Um, we did the White Man in Hammersmith Palais single cover. It was, it was a label, actually, based off of the Jamaican um, singles at that time, of a... Of, and also based on Roy Lichtenstein's famous gun. And that was our first. That was our first thing we did, and and um, you know, it's exciting because I didn't even realize back then any of them. I wasn't doing anything for money. I was doing it because it was great. I mean, in fact, it makes me laugh now because I probably didn't get paid hardly anything to do that. And and um, but I did it because because of the, the thrill and the love of doing it and and being part of a movement that was so vibrant and so. I mean, people get 
the, the, the wrong idea about punk. And unfortunately, what happened was punk turned into this cartoon, yeah, Liberty spikes and nose rings, and, t- and it wasn't like that at all in the beginning. All it was very art studently. The clothes, the painted clothes, are just literally based off lack of funds to buy anything, and and the paint on the shirts, the art students did. They thought they would wear them out, and like they got them when they were working in the studio. It was a very artistic um, movement, and um, it, it got you know it got hold of by the m- m- regular media and turned into something that was obscene really and spitting and fighting and, and all that kind of stuff and blue sniffing it w- really wasn't like that it was it was a very underground art form to start and um when all the people involved with it either went to all pretty much went to art school so um so that's how i got and like paul did so that's how i got involved with the clash and it was it did a couple of things for them some post tour posters and uh, and uh, um and that was and that was about it really and but during that time because um, Bernard Bros, who was the Tash's manager then, they fired him later. He then got a band called Dex's Midnight Runners, who, who, and I was still at art school when we did this stuff. You've got to remember that. I was only in my second year. So I didn't even really know how to put artwork together. It was like, shit, I've got to make this up as I go along. Um, but we also got to do a, a T-shirt for the Ramones. And again, we did it on the train up there. We, get, we, we had no concept of how you put artwork together. We just started art school. And, and and so, but nobody cared. And and you know, we went to we showed up to this meeting with this T-shirt that we did on the train. We cut bits out of the newspaper. We stuck it down with tape and on, onto an actual T-shirt, and we gave that to the record label, Sire Records, Ramones, as the artwork. We didn't know you had to do it on board and overlays. We had no clue about that. And I think I, I, I often think, well, what did they really think when they got this piece of artwork from us? They must have like wondered what the hell had gone on. And, and Bernard was very much the same. He didn't care what... He just wanted the right energy, the right attitude towards things. So we did a Dexter's Minute Runners cover, which got notoriety because we took a picture from our library at art school, our tear sheet library, of a kid in an evacuation in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. And it was a captivating photograph because he's got two suitcases. He's looking directly at the camera and all behind him is chaos. And we didn't know anything about licensing or clearance or copyright, anything like that. So anyway, this got out and it got back to the Belfast Telegraph. And we thought, oh, shit, we're in trouble here. Cause we, but no, they, they loved it. It made the kid famous, you know. And, and so there was no, we, we didn't get into trouble at all. And that was the first record cover I did whilst at the art school without having really been taught anything at that point. So that was, yeah, again, I think a lot of it came into the right, having the right attitude and being in the right place at the right time with that. So that's how that connection went. So it went from the clash 
at two Dexys Minute Runners. And when Dexys Minute Runners were on the same label as Bow Wow Wow, and one day I was up at EMI, and I bumped into Malcolm McLaren, and and um, and yeah, I told him I was working with Bernie and all this kind of stuff. And he told me, that's when he told me the album cover's dead. It's like, and he predicted the future in a way. He didn't quite know in which context. He said, people don't want to buy records. They, they want to tape their own. And and so this whole idea of pirating and taping off the radio, which is the same as downloading on the internet. I mean, when when um the first uh what is what was it called who who started the first um uh um from his name now um but, but the first music place we could download for free that's what that was it's like creating your own albums by by taping off the radio so so Malcolm was ahead of his time with that and I did the um and I did the Bow Wow cover now I just left art school at that point so I had a bit more of a clue what I was doing um and and we did the um the we we took we had we wanted to, to do a controversial classical painting and we had three options we had fragonard's the bolt which is a, is a painting of a man reaching up to to lock the door with a woman trying to stop him from doing it which obviously had its own connotations and then we had eugene delacroix's liberty leads the people which is a picture of the french revolution of a of a bare-breasted woman holding the the french flag through the revolution that was my favorite i thought that was a had, it was as a it was sexy but it was powerful and it was a woman and then the last one was uh, De, um, 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 uh, Manet's uh, Liberty Leaves the Peace. Oh, I'm sorry, Manet's Lunch on the Grass, Lunch on the Grass. Full of um, people having a picnic. Uh, it was two men and one naked woman. And um, and that, that, at the time, created controversy, not because of the naked woman, because you're, you're dealing with Paris. Paris had naked women everywhere it was the folie bergere it was moulin rouge it wasn't that wasn't a big deal to the french you know nakedness was not a big deal it was a style in which it was painted it was like impressionistic one of the first impressionistic paintings and it was it was it was um criticized by napoleon as being amateurish and that's the controversy it caused people get confused about that so we went for that painting and it had no sexuality. It wasn't meant to be, there was no sexuality in it at all, but because she was 15 and because she didn't have any clothes on, even though you couldn't see that she didn't have any clothes on, none of us saw anything, it had anything to do, it was a powerful painting, a picture. And we did that picture and um, Annabella, Annabella's mother freaked out and she tried to get us arrested because she was naked in a public place. and. And um, and Annabella was fully into it. She she signed an affidavit. So so morals have not changed. Oh no, sorry. Morals have got more conservative because again, with that particular cover, nobody. It wasn't a big deal to most people. It was the media that made it a big deal because before that we had punk and we had much more controversial images than that. I mean, really. So people were used to that. It was it was the media that took it into what it was and created a darkness around it that didn't that really didn't exist. And if you look at it as a picture, it's a, it's a beautiful picture, and that's what we wanted to do. So I got really so my first album cover of No really got a lot of publicity around it, and and um, still does. And it's actually in the museum, National Gallery Portrait Gallery in London, as as one of the um, defining pictures of the. 80s and 1980s.
understood it but there's always going to be a level of people that don't understand and criticize it and aren't you know very happy about it um so that was created a notoriety for me and then um and then soon after and then at that time i worked also with culture club and boy george and and um and uh um banana rama i just worked with banana rama um and then i realized that the london was was it was too small because everyone knew each other. I needed to get a new perspective. So I moved to New York and um, I went out and stayed out on that night nearly most of the time. I got there in the first boom. I spent all night clubs. Yeah. Didn't do a single bit of work until one day I realized I didn't have any money. And then, um, and this is one of the things Ken talks about in his, in his books. He's got a book. Um, he wrote a book and it's about uh, epiphany and it's about having epiphanies uh, uh, and, and what you need to to um, do to what what separates the people that become successful from the people who don't become successful, even though at some point they might be going on the same journey. And that is one thing he said is is having a mentor. Mentors are really important to that. But the other thing is, no matter what happens and where you are, you still do it, even though you've, you're broke. You're going to be thrown at you. You don't stop. Now this is what depressed me and my sister for example my I, I was living in new york in a cockroach filled apartment with no money i was me and my girlfriend were getting crackers and peanut butter to for food because we had no money but i didn't i never doubted what i was going to do i just kept on doing it and that's the difference a lot of people by that point give up and, and they go oh i can't yeah i'm going to go but i'm going to get a job i can't deal with this i i was lucky because I knew a lot of people in New York, so I, I had friends who had restaurants. But generally, I was—I literally didn't have a penny. And one moment, I thought about going back to London. But then I went through the greatest sort of transition in my life because I did—I um, I did. Uh, I, I was there doing the duck rock cover with Malcolm, which is the beginning of the hip hop movement. And and um, literally, um, nobody except for people in South Bronx even knew about this thing. There was a club in Manhattan called the Grill. They were playing Africa Van Barter and these new people and there was this new thing going on and Malcolm said, we have to go to New York. We need to check this out because everything's going on there. So we went to New York. Malcolm was recording an album. It's been around the world and he told me about this thing he went to, this party he went to in the Bronx where these guys were taking records and they were making records up out of, out of other people's records. And, 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 he, and he said it was, it was amazing. And then they were, they were talking over it. And they were, they were doing these loops, and he said it was an incredible thing. He'd never seen anything like it. There was no band, but these record decks. So I went there, and when I was in New York, I, I was, I was, it blew me away because I was walking down the street, and I saw these, in Washington Square Park, these kids breakdancing. Now, we all know what breakdancing looks like now. So none of us, if we see it, know. But imagine it. Nobody's seen a kid, a kid spinning around on his head. It was like the Martins have landed. I mean, I'd never seen anything like it before. It was, it was, it was literally mind blowing watching it. And then you got 
these guys that are making music up out of nothing because they didn't have any money from it. It was like punk again. And I got to know a guy called Michael Holman who ran this club called The Grill, and he got to introduce me to Dondi White, who was a graffiti artist who I went tagging on the subway train with, and, and Keith Herring, who became like just a big retrospective here in the gallery in LA and in the um, Broad Broad Museum. Um, and so I got in, in the very, very, very beginnings of that thing that came out of New York where people in Manhattan didn't even know what rap music was. And Malcolm really was the one that brought that to the rest of the world with the song Buffalo Girls. Blondie had done Rapture, but it was still a pop song. But 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 um, Buffalo Girls was not. And um, it was, it was um, deconstructed. It didn't have a chorus. It didn't have a melody particularly, but it was something about it that was really great. And I did all the artwork around it. And the preeminent image on that cover, it was um, this boombox that we had because we noticed that everyone was carrying boomboxes boxes around. And up until this point, until this, until you got boomboxes, you couldn't take your music with you. You had to listen to it on the record player. So suddenly you got this, this thing that you could carry around with you. And so you saw guys walking down the streets, playing this music and on the shoulder and they, and they start to paint on them and customize them a little bit. And because Malcolm would come back from these trips to South Africa, he said that we should, we should do that. We should take this as an inspiration. So we created that boombox, which has been one of the most, um, well, when I got inducted into the album cover Hall of Fame, I did an interview with him about that, about that cover. And it, 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 it's, it's been inspirational to so many people um, and they want that. It's the most coveted thing. And I got the guy, the technician at my art school to build it for me. And we built it into um, almost like a creature because the album was called Duck Rock. So we sort of would call it like a, it was a duck locker. But we put horns on it and leopard skin and antennas and mirrors and we painted the, that rock on it. And the most amazing thing about it is when he took it to South Africa to do the videos and the, the Zulu tribes, they thought it was a deity. They, they, they were just, they, they were worshipping this thing because, because it's animalistic and it played music. And he, I've got, there's some great pictures of him like sitting around the circle with this thing. So I just thought that is so powerful. What a powerful thing that is, that, that it can mean and bring this stuff. So to me, people going about the Keith Haring um, painting, it was in the background, a lot of them do. But it was that, that um, icon there. Beijing had a big exhibition called Stalin to Revolt, and it was based on the on the English street scene at the time. And it starts with the Duck Rock album, saying this is where it began. And so they want to know if there was if they still had a Duck Rocker, but I didn't. But I got hold of the guy that built it for me. He re rebuilt another one, and it was in the exhibition, and it and it looked great. So so that was so I've been involved with not just. Yeah, my, my thing was not just being, oh, I'm a, a gun for hire. You know, 
I I got really got into. It. I stayed in New York for three months. I went to, I, partly because there were no cell phones and I couldn't get hold of Keith Haring because he didn't have a phone and there were no not in beepers or anything like that. So I'd have to go out at night because he worked he worked on at the door certain clubs to see if I could find him. So I, so I ended up getting really involved with it and the at that album cover to me I always liken it to if someone puts a poster up for something on the wall in a subway. And then a few days later, someone just has to rip that down. Then someone else writes on top of it. And someone else puts another poster on it. That's what it was for me. It just grew itself. It was organic. I hardly designed it. It just seemed like it took care of itself. So that to me was, I hated it when I saw it, when I saw the proof of it, because they got, they got the colors wrong. And, and um, But I couldn't change it. We had to go with it. Now I go, well, actually, it was a clash. It was the orange and pink together. I just thought, no, they got that wrong. So I tried to get it redone, and, and they didn't. They couldn't, there was no time. And now I'm glad they didn't because I think it worked, everything works perfectly. So that was great because that was a, yeah, I just done Bow Wow Wow and I was doing Mountain. So I got these two, and the, and the Duck Rock the duck rock cover is in the Museum of Modern Arts uh, um, permanent collection. So I've got two album covers back to back. One's in the National Portrait Gallery, one's in the Museum of Modern Art. I must be doing something right. And then I got to work with Bob Dylan. And, and that was in the Whitney Museum of, of Art. And so oh, wow. I, I was sort of, I was realizing my ambition to be a painter, but I was a graphic artist and I did particularly like graphic design and I did biograph. And that was an interesting challenge to me because it was, um, I was approached by them because I'd worked on his previous record cover. I didn't know much about Bob Dylan, wasn't even a fan of his particularly, but I knew he was an important person. He was, he turned out to be one of the greatest people I've worked with just because of the, he, he didn't give a shit, basically. Um, he did what he wanted to do. He was a true punk in that respect. And when they said to me, do the cover, I was thinking, well, I'm not going to do that. And it's like, that, that, what, what defines Bob Dylan? What, you know, all the stuff he's done. And they gave me, I had to go to his, his publishers. You know, they wouldn't let me take any of the pictures away, but I had to go to his publishers. And they gave me 2,000 photographs to choose from. And I thought, what a nightmare. And it, but then, so I was going to, and I came across that picture on the cover, which is a 1960s, publicity picture of Dylan and I thought that's it because A he looked like he could be in a punk band because he had that hair looked like Johnny Thunders um, and it's just something about the attitude of it but how can I make it look a bit more contemporary and I so I there was artists called Gilbert and George and they did high contrast black and white and they put primary colours over that so that was that idea and then there was a Matisse exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art and I gave it that little flourish because he's, he's a poet. And that was huge because it went to the Whitney and, and it was the first box set. So I was very lucky that I got to do, it was like my first videos for Iggy Pop. So so I've always, I've been lucky with the first things I've done because they've done, they've been either really iconic people, um, um, which the many are, or it's been something that's sort of been, had some some kind of, relevance it to the time politically or, or or culturally so so that's that's how i really start to go up and i could go on about that stuff individually forever but but really i just wanted to give you a sense of, of how it all began that's amazing it just to to seize the opportunity when you see it in front of you and and, and run with it the way you have i mean that's that's just amazing you know i i wish i had the guts to do that it's, you know what it is? A lot of it is, is instinct, and you feel it. And and 
And it's what, like Ken said, that it's just there was something about it. I didn't know that I was qualified to do some of these things. I didn't know I was good enough because I didn't really, I didn't really take art school very seriously. So I had to make it up so, as I went along. And at times I think I'm faking this because I'm really not. But you, you know, yeah, I was lucky, and I had the conviction and belief to go. This is the right thing to do, you know. And 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 it was like with the Dylan thing. I just it just was like right. That's it. I don't need to look at anything else. That's the one. Because my instinct told me that was the one, so and luckily my instinct was right, and and duck rock too. You know, it was the same thing. My instincts were telling me this is what I'm going to do. Instincts are hard to keep hold of, though, because after a while, once you become commercially successful, you start to think about what people want instead of instead of what you want. You know, and what you want may sound selfish, but what you want is usually ends up what other people want. If that makes sense, you know, that's that's the way it really came. Okay. Okay. All right, so then you mentioned Iggy Pop, and I know that you did an album cover for him, and you also said that that was the first video that you directed. Yeah, I did. I did, and Iggy was great to work with. First of all, he's a legend, and how part of that time is I can't believe I'm working with Iggy Pop. He was the man that walked on the hands of the audiences like Jesus walking on water, and he was uh, definitely a hero with with the punk movement. And so here he was. Um, cleaned up from heroin, very clean looking, very healthy looking, he had a suntan, and I was through his cover, and, and um, I worked with a guy called Michael Houseman, who I worked with on some stuff with Malcolm, and Ma uh, Michael Houseman did a lot of GQ, did a lot of men, he made, he took pictures of men, and, and retain their masculinity, rather than making them look too kind of like effeminate, which a lot of things happened, because Ziggy was a man, you know, and, and so we decided to go, really go for that Calvin Klein look, T-shirt and jeans, classic Americana, classic American male, and, and 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 sell a different Iggy to the world as opposed to the junky kind of where he used to cut his chest with a broken bottle. And we said, okay, this is Iggy now. And and so my great story from him was going to his apartment to talk to him, and he opened up his um, he opened up the front door, and he's wearing what we call pinafores. What do they call them here? Um, you know, that maids wear to clean the house. So you have one of these on like apron, an apron type of thing. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. With a, and it was a, it was a flowery, lacy thing, which is even funny because it was really like hey. feminine. And he, because, okay. because he was tying the house up. So we're sitting there and he's sitting there with his apron on and we're talking and I asked him some question and he stops and he thought, and, and he suddenly got up and he went and he plugged in the vacuum and he started to vacuum, <laughs> started to vacuum the house. And I'm going, what bizarre image. I've got Iggy Pop there in front of me wearing an apron and vacuuming his, his apartment. And then he stops and he came sat down and he goes, sorry, I just do that when I need to think. And I thought that was a great thing. Wow. I'm a real wild one. Wild one. Wild one. Wild one. Wild one. And so, so that, that, that showed his personality and, and it was 
a really successful record. And from that, this is the very early days of music video. MTV hadn't been around that long. Bow Wow Wow was one of the first people they played. And I've, I've been involved with the Bow Wow Wow I Want Candy video because uh, I came to LA when they did that. But I didn't direct it and I never thought about directing. I was very much album covers of my things. You know, um, videos are just, you, they're not tangible. They're not tactile. Album covers are tactile. Album, album covers are informative. Album covers are art. So I really, when I got in the beginning, they were looking for people that had been, that had other skills rather than being going to film school. So people who were photographers, people who were designers. Too. And so I was on that, on that thing and I got approached by people to to do become a director and I was really no I'm not really interested in that. And so um what happened was um uh, my rep at the time, Lynn, she said, Look, A and M would like you to do the video for Real World Child from Niggy Pop thing. So they like what you did with the graphics and you don't have to film anything. There's a, there's some footage of him playing at the Ritz in New York and then maybe you can put some graphics in that thing and do that. So I said, okay, so I'll give it a go. So I had to come to Los Angeles, and um, and, I, and they gave me a video, a cheap video camera, just in case I wanted to do any textural stuff. And so I came to I came to LA, and then I filmed some stuff down Sunset Boulevard, and then I got an editor in this valley who I wasn't a great editor, it was just a cheap editor, and, and he edited this thing together. And it first of all, I loved doing it. I, I just thought, my God, I'd always loved film growing up because my mother's a big film fan and, and and you know she loved the greats like Ava Gardner and Rita Hayworth and so I was really aware of Hollywood in fact I felt like I knew Hollywood better than I knew anywhere else because of that and so I got and it the, the played environment and so I got really bitten by it and and um and I did this video and it got MCV loved it so it went straight onto MCV and and um and then you got that that sense of of you don't really get when you when you do an album cover, it goes out. You don't really get a sense of what people think about it. You know, not until recently, anyway. You don't get it goes out and it's done. You see some stuff, but with a video, you see it on TV and you know everybody's watching that at the same time. And and you and the more they play it, the more they watch it. You know, so you get this instant gratification from 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 it going on on TV as opposed to going in just into a record store. Even though sometimes the record store displays are great. And so I got I got bitten by it, but right at that same time, I just finished Psychedelic Third. I, I I was listening to I was walking down the street with a friend of mine one day, and 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 I heard that's um, what you need was playing. I said, you know what? So I said I love it because it 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 was rock. love that song i said I, and she goes oh that's my friend michael he's in that band they're in excess that's what they do i said really he goes and she goes yeah they're playing at the uh, madison square garden in a couple of weeks you want to come with me you and michael will get on great she said so i said okay so i went to the show and what i realized going into it it was uh, 
I didn't know what Michael, Michael, what Michael Hutchins looked like. I didn't, I, I, when I saw the video, I didn't know which one was him. It wasn't, he wasn't ever in the focus of it all. And, and so when I went to the show, and, and I was compared to Richard Butler, who, who I love as well. If I was at that point, if I was walking in the street with Richard Butler and Michael Hutchins, everybody would recognize Richard Butler and no one recognized Michael Hutchins. Now, he did in Australia, but not so much here. So I thought, some, oh, and, well, but when I got to the show, and I still didn't know which one Michael was until he came up and excuse me to him. And I would not have seen him, that's playing, and he's brilliant. And then when he came up to me, I thought, what, what are they doing? They've got, they have got, probably one of the possibly the greatest rock stars of all time and they and you don't know who he is so i thought that was wrong and so we got on great and i said to michael i'd love to do your album cover he's got some ideas for it and he goes great following week i was in la where they were playing because i was seeing richard to finish off the stuff with richard and then michael kind of said well come down to australia you know and and you can do the cover so i thought okay so i I got a ticket and went down to Australia. And when I got there, I said, Michael, Michael, said, oh, well, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, come and stay with me. So I went to stay with Michael, and and um, and then the next day we got up and we went down. We, he lived in a place called Kirribilli across the harbour from the main part of Sydney, and we had to get the ferry. And Michael got me on a skateboard with him, and he was skating down the street and stopping and waiting for me to catch up with him. And I, I was looking at this guy because skateboarding was relatively new at that point, and we got on a ferry, and and everybody was looking at him. But he wasn't aware of it. He was sort of oblivious to it. And he had his skateboard in his eyes. He had his long hair. And I was just captivated by his aura. It was, it was, a, you know, it, it, was, it was like nothing I'd seen before. Of all the people I've worked with, I thought, man, this guy is a, is a star. And so I went to the studio with a recording uh, um, kick and uh, met the band. And what I realized, Michael had not told anyone that I was coming. Not his man. Nobody knew anything about me when I got in. I thought, oh, God, what have I done? Spent this money on his ticket, and nobody knows who I am. And I said, you know, because artists can be like that. They can go on a whim and forget about it. So I realized I've got to ingratiate myself in with everybody. And, and first of all, let them know that I'm not just a mate of Michael's had shown up. I've actually got quite a successful career working with some really good bands. So I got myself and stayed up at the studio for a long time and listened to other band and got friendly with them. We talked about stuff, and they got to like me. and. And so they, they were all like, yeah, and it's got to do the cover. And, and so we did that cover. But my whole thing going into it was, okay, this, first of all, there was a band called um, Minute Worker Out. And, and, and they, they had that saying, um, uh, comment with the um, song was, but it was all about Australia. Living in a, what would you know that song? What was it called? Minute Down Work, Under. Um, Down Under. Yeah, yeah. And I, hate, and I thought, that is what the perception of Australians are to most people. But in excess of not a... An Australian, but they're an international band. They're, they're so, they're, yeah, they can appeal to everybody, not just they don't have an, they, they have an Australian edge to them, but they're not necessarily Australian in that respect. So I thought that's what I've got to bring to them. I've got to make them an international band. Take away Australia completely out of the equation. Don't deny they're from there, but just make them into something that people, especially the English, can look at and go, well, that's cool. And um, and that's when I came up with it. And I knew they were a band. I was very cautious about that. But I also knew that Michael was going to be the Michael was the thing. Michael was the thing that 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 you needed to make people aware of him. So I had to be very clever with it. And as I said in my thing I did on Facebook, really I never saw it as a front and back. I saw the whole thing folded out as a front. So this whole controversy about it, it it, it comes to just the fact they had to fold it in half. And and you know I pitched it to the band, and the band were kind of cool with the idea. And I, and and I I started to put things together. 
And I realized it was not really the support coming out of the management. They were, they were like, well, we need a backup. And, you know, this might, you know, Chris doesn't think this is right for the band at this point. And so luckily I had Michael on my side and he completely supported me. But once Michael left to go to Hong Kong, they hit, they started pressurizing me. So we need this, otherwise you're not going to get paid. And, and, but I still had it in my head, this has got a bit, I had to make their logo into something that was bold and big and you could see it, so it's in your fucking face, it's in excess, my, this is the guy that sings and this is the band, right? And it was just, unfortunately, who got on the front and back, it wasn't a calculated thing, it was to do with the photographs that worked together, how I put them together, but it was always meant to be a band picture. But Murphy quite cleverly would, would kind of hint to the band, you know, oh, you look like you're the backing band or, or, you know, and and so they started to become a little bit more skeptical about it, and and so and I was thinking, oh, yeah, Michael wasn't there to, to support it, and and then we had to go. Um, luckily, I didn't really have anywhere to work in Sydney, so WA Records were a label offered me to use their art department, which is great, great of them. And luckily, they were really, really supportive of it, at WA, and they said, no, we don't need to change this cover at all. It's a great cover. And and so it came out and the rest is history because he did exactly what I wanted it to do. It wasn't, you know, I can't take the credit for it made the record because the record was such a brilliant record. But what it did do and what, what record companies did do back then, anything that came out that was new, the first anything you got to do was an image from the record cover. And it was a lot of pressure on you because if they didn't like it in some way, like I always say, if, you, if someone was standing in a record store and they liked these two bands, they'll choose the one they like the album cover from the most so that's a power and so when i did that um i i was i was vindicated first of all for 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 what i believed in um and and yeah and subsequently it's gone on and they've used the idea that i did for the logo and they've, they've reissued that record so many times i never got a thank thank i mean the band thanked me they were great about it i gotta say they were gracious even after all the controversy um, passive aggressiveness that you know, they realized it was a it was a, it helped with their success like the video did and the video obviously took my idea and and, and i was always really pissed off richard lone he's never gave me the credit for it even though he took that and he made that the video that won all those awards um so i really i really had a bit me and chris thomas who produced the record i got had the biggest influence on that band in terms of success because chris's production of it was was brilliant uh, and and um but, you know, at the same time, though, I, say, I, I thought what they'd done was a masterpiece at the time in music. And I think what I did by being in the studio, I got, I got to interpret some of their, their, their kind of ideology. And, and, um, and I remember hearing Easy Tonight and thinking, I've never, I, I'd never heard anything like it before. So it was easy to be inspired by it.
and and you know, like I said, I was I was ultimately vindicated, and and then went on to do two more covers and two videos for the band, um, and and just probably some of the most enjoyable things I did, and and the Max Q, of course, Michael solo record, and and yeah, it, it was. I didn't realize the tragedy was about to unfold because by the time we got to Wembley, which I was at Wembley, it was like they were the biggest, they were, they were bigger than you too. They were the biggest band in the world at that time. They had everything. They just needed to hold on to it. And I remember being at that show and just going, wow, it's just like, and that shot and the cover is like Jesus. It's like Jesus on the top of in Rio. It's just that it's, this is what a rock star is. He's a guy that's kind of got his hands out like Jesus on the cross. And there's a sea of humanity in front of him. What better image than that to show what your rock star? Yeah, and I really, Michael said to me at that point, I can't, I can't, um, I can't get involved now. It's too much, you know. Again, I think it's yeah, our friendship. But you know, I think the good, to, to be honest, the band got that because they were at that show and they, you know, they were part of it. And I think they saw that that that, that was important. But the sad thing about it was, after Wembley, it all went downhill. After that, it kind of started. Because what they did, they, they made a calculated mistake. They decided they wanted to take a break. Because one of the reasons Michael did Max Q. You know, understandably, they were exhausted. They wanted to spend time with their family. But they took too long off. And, 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 you know, two years, I think it was. And, and they took too long off. And, and, and they kind of felt like they'd done enough. And, and they, got, they got sort of lazy into it. Whereas Michael was living in a different place. He, you know, he got his place in the south of France. He, he wanted to... He couldn't sit around too long. That's why he decided to do his solo project to keep him going. He wanted to know what he was like as a person. And what I found about Michael, the real Michael, was there was Michael Hutchins, the rock, Hutchins, the rock star with the hair and the swagger. And there was Michael Hutchins, the person who was this shy poet. And when he showed up at my house one night after kick, I didn't recognize him because he cut his hair off and he's wearing glasses. He looked bookish. And that's what Michael is. He was bookish. But... It, but and an intellect. I mean, he would his seduction thing. I don't think he did it on purpose at first. Was was the book perfume, and he would tell girls about it. So he told me about it, about the story and how. And he had such a brilliant way of of captivating you with this. The way he described it. That's what he was. He was he was a poet more than a rock star, but he was also a rock star. And there was a a kind of dilemma within that in a way as as. Part of it, he, he, the fame got to him because it was like superficial, you know, long hair, you know, and people started to grow their hair long, and so he decided he didn't want to do that anymore. And when he came, there was this sweetness of, look, he was always a sweet person, one of the kindest people I've known, but people forget he's, he was an intellect. I mean, he, he was one of those people that, that you could, it was great to be at dinner with because he had these great stories, some of them fabricated. Uh, um, and he was quietly spoken, and he wasn't arrogant, and, you know, he never used the star thing. I used to tell him to use the star. You know, we went to a club one night, and, and he was standing in the queue, and I said, Michael, okay, you've got to use your stardom. So I went to the guy at the door. I said, well, I've got Michael Hutchins here with me, and they marched us straight in. And I said, you know what, sometimes it's okay to use that, that fame, because you are a star, and people want you to be like a star, you know. People, Hollywood was all about stars, and Michael was a star in that respect. So the sad thing about it was, was the Max Q record, which was great, but the lack of support it got from management and band was was long term to him. It was, it was kind of devastating. Not because he didn't do well, because I don't think he really cared about that. He'd had the fame, and if he wanted it to do well, he'd had his face on the cover. But he wanted to be part of the band, of the band Max Q, because he wanted to see what he test his own 
creative abilities on it. So it was, um, but it was sad to see how it wasn't supported by the label, by, by the record label. And that was Chris Murphy, who would tell them not to promote it. And he, he'd done a piece of work that he should have been really proud of. And I think he was in, in inside, but he felt like, you know, nobody, nobody supported the band. Didn't even come, no, not one of the band even congratulated him on it. And I think that's where the rock really starts to set in. And I spent a lot of time with him and Ollie, um, and Rhett, his brother, we were in New York together. It was almost like we were a team, all of us together, because we were all hanging out together. And then it, when he came to LA, we, he got it was in Malibu, and we, we there was an energy going on between between everybody, and and um, and it was good for him because it was away from an accessory. He used to say it was like being in a in a marriage, you know, it's just going through the motions. And this was a, a you know, he never want you know, he never talked about leaving the band. He wanted to come back to the band energized by having done something different with different people that and i get that completely was they all just sitting around doing nothing and and, and um and so by the time x came out to record that he was ready to go for it he was ready to be back in the excess but um but i just don't think the way he was handled by anybody at that time on something that was really important to him it was really important to him um was was honorable at all and and um and I was very proud of what I did for the Max Q cover and, and the way it was incorporated. And Michael loved that because he didn't want to be in the focus at all. And and so the idea of Max Q worked out. And then X came out. And X did okay, but didn't do as great as Kick. And yeah, then, then after Wembley, you know, it was starting to, starting to go down. I went to South Africa to do um, Don't Lose Your Head for the film um, uh, um, that they did with John Travolta and Nicholas Cage. Face off. Michael, yeah, face off. And Michael loved that performance. And then by the time I got to be searching, they were playing theatres again. They, they weren't playing arenas anymore. They, they were struggling to get people to come to shows. And I think Michael, at that point, I think he, he began to think maybe I need to leave the band. Maybe I need to leave the band. to leave the band and, and, and do something different because he didn't like the way it was produced the record he think it was cool no i mean you don't understand this why is it for michael once is like look at you two they went to berlin as a band that record is a great record because they lived together they did it and they came great. that's why they said they are too comfortable in their lives right now they're too comfortable with their farms and their this and that they need to you need to rediscover who you are as a band and he agreed with that but you can't you couldn't make them do it so so um, I think at that point, he felt like he was, listen, anyone who complained about Michael getting the headlines is an idiot because Michael worked at that. Michael went out. Michael had the glamorous girlfriends. Michael did, you know, the band did do that. They, 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 they relied on his fame for their own without doing anything about it. I mean, John was the closest to doing that, but Michael truly was, he was the international man. He was exactly what I wanted him to be. He lived in London. He was in South France. He was in 
at Paris, he was all over the place and, and absorb, absorbing the culture. Michael knew everything that was going on. And he, I remember when he played me the um, Black Grape record for the first time because no one had a copy of it. And it was great. And then he played me the Susie and the Banshees, a great song, um, Kiss Them for Me. He knew what was going on in music, which is why the whole thing with Oasis was so bad, you know. But but he, he was, they didn't know anything. He knew everything. So, so you know, I don't diss the band because I think I, I think those guys were great to me. I don't think they've been as good to me in return because, you know, Kurt said, really negative things but but um but I, I i i thought they were great and and great people and i loved him and i had a good time and they treated me like i was one of their own so i don't really want to knock them but but at the same time you got to look at what the dynamic was between michael and, and the band so and it wasn't it wasn't good and and a lot of things were going on that weren't good in his life and and sadly it all went down and it got to this terrible terrible tragedy that ended up in it and and it's hard to fathom that where could it have all gone wrong and where could you right. where could things have changed it was it was a combination of a lot of things that happened the, the, the racist thing the Paula thing the band thing the bob gelder thing all kind of like came into this perfect storm and and um i could see i could see the downhill pattern it was sad going you know, to see them with, with play when they now playing in a, in a 1500 seat theaters and, and 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 how quickly that happened and and um and and how I could see why it happened. Um, when you get to the top, that's when you have to work the hardest. When you get to the top, it's not when you say, okay, I can take some time. You get three records down after that, you can do that. You've got to go, you've got to let them, people know you can come up with a good follow-up, but they took too long off. And and that's when you too and other people start to overtake them and, and take that place. And, and then it says, we're at that moment, the biggest band in the world. And and they lost it. And, and 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 today I think it's so sad. And you know you wouldn't get Bridget agreeing with me on on a lot of that stuff because she's just you know obsessed with the band. So so and and she's loyal to them. But but and and loyal fans don't always want to see what the truth is. And and I think that that um, had all those things gone that way, Michael would have still been alive now because he you know then yeah. no doubt he had a lot to look forward to. So that's basically my experience with the next. So it's one I'm very proud of and one. One, I'm again. I felt very vindicated for. I think I was exactly right. I'm glad I stuck to my guns with 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 the way the cover looked, and um, yeah, and and yeah, the subsequent covers I did. So, so yeah, it was an important part of my life, and he became a very, very, very close friend. And um, which a lot of you know, which happens with a lot of people. Like Richard Butler and I became very close. John Taylor and I became very close. Barry Gordon, Bell, and Malcolm. You, you kind of that's like I say I'm not a hired gun it's like I like to get to know the person as a person or the people as people and you really get to know who they are and trust is an important thing and I think I, I earned that from a lot of the bands I work with because I delivered I delivered you know well everybody this seems like a good place for us to break this episode we'll be back in two weeks with the rest of our interview with Nick Egan Nick had some other great stories to share He talks about the psychedelic furs, his work with Duran Duran and Oasis, and he shares a story about Alanis Morissette that he has never shared before. So you'll definitely want to tune in in two weeks. Thank you so much, Nick. You've been very generous with your time and your stories, and it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much, everybody. See you in two weeks.